Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Derek Darby. Derek is Henry Rutgers Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at Rutgers University. His research is focused in contemporary social and political philosophy, where he works on rights, egalitarianism, and democracy. His latest book has just been published with Oxford University Press. It is titled A Realistic Blacktopia, Why We Must Unite to Fight. In the United States, unjust disparities in things like income, opportunity, health, safety, and education tightly track racial categorizations of the U.S. population. Now, an intuitive approach to social justice calls for us to look at the sites of the greatest disadvantage and then take measures aimed to relieve them. This approach favors race-specific policies for pursuing justice. However, as anyone following recent jurisprudence in the United States will no doubt have noticed, that kind of rationale is increasingly vulnerable in a country that's largely convinced that it has achieved a post-racial condition. The remaining disparities therefore remain, but they get explained away by appeals to alleged faults uh, on the part of those who suffer under them. Now, in a realistic blacktopia, Derek Darby defends a different approach. According to Darby, the psychological and social realities of the United States suggests that we need to adopt non-race-specific social justice agendas. Agendas that explicitly tie our efforts to mitigate unjust inequalities that track racial categorization to big tent initiatives to broaden and deepen democratic inclusion for citizens as such. Now, there's a lot to talk about, as there normally is, so we'll begin where we normally do, and that is with our guest. Hello, Derek. Hello, Bob. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic, Bob. That's great to hear. Um, you know, we start with uh, with the author. Uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself, Derek? Sure will. Uh, before before I say something, though, I, I, I love that intro you gave me. Uh, too bad I didn't call you to write the blurb for my book, because uh, you would have done a better job <laughs> than I did. I'm going to make a little mental note right now. Call Bob for the next blurb of the book, man. That was beautiful. So, I appreciate yeah, that. Thank you. So, uh, so Bob, um, yeah, man, and how I, how I got into philosophy, uh, you know, I, I'm a, you know, I, we could have another whole another show about that that question. Um, I did a, some years ago, I did a TEDx talk and I talked about growing up in uh, uh, New York City, uh, Queensbridge Public Housing Project, and then mm. talked about uh, really how I discovered my, my love for philosophy growing up in my neighborhood uh, and, and the influence that uh, hip hop had on me in, in, in that, making that discovery. Um, so there's a story to be told there for people that are interested in, in my TEDx talk called Doing the Knowledge. And so I'll, I'll, right. I'll refer people to that for that part of the story. But as far as my sort of uh, my, my coming into philosophy, my understanding of, you know, what what philosophy was and as a, as a, as a discipline, um, the story for that really begins in, in college. Uh, I went from uh, 
kid growing up in New York City, you know, raised in Queens and Manhattan, went to went to high school in Manhattan, and then you know made made the trip from there to uh, upstate Central New York to Colgate University, All right. uh, where I did my uh, undergraduate work, and I had a it was a small liberal arts school. Not not even three thousand students at the time. I think I was there, maybe twenty six hundred or so, and I, I just had a, an amazing uh, journey in college. And early on, I had a wonderful professor. I took this course. Uh, well, I took this course my freshman year. That was in uh, French philosophy, and uh, hmm. I got introduced to Camus and Sartre. And you know how that goes, man. You give a oh, you yeah. give a, you give a you give a you give an undergraduate. Uh, who's got an inkling for philosophy, some some French existentialism, and you got them. They they pretty much hooked. <laughs> and so, man, I was I was hook hook line and sinker after that. I said, oh, this is cool. And um, remember reading the plague, Camus writing a paper, and you know, and all this stuff. And uh, so I said, well, let me let me explore another philosophy class uh, my sophomore year. And I took this course in ancient Greek philosophy with uh, Professor Ann Ashbaugh. Uh, who I can't really talk about without almost getting choked up because she meant that much to me as a, as a teacher in college. Um, so I took this class in Greek philosophy and again, I, I loved it. And, you know, before, you know, good, you know, early on in the semester, she asked me if I was a philosophy major and I said, no, I'm not a philosophy major. She said, well, I'm gonna tell you what, you're going to be a philosophy major. I said, oh, really? <laughs> and she said, yeah. I said, okay, well, I guess I'm gonna be a philosophy major. <laughs> and sure <laughs> and sure enough, she had me signed up for a philosophy major before the semester was over. And, and so um, at Colgate, philosophy, the philosophy department was combined with the religion department. So it was like philosophy and religion, you know, so the philosophy side, but I took lots of courses in, in religion as well. Uh, including courses with a professor named Josiah Young, who hmm. taught me black liberation theology, which I found super interesting. Um, now, alongside philosophy, and this is really important, I think, to understand the work I've done as a philosopher, I minored uh, in uh, African-American studies. Hmm. And my advisor for African-American studies um, was, he's now passed away, but very famous left leftist black historian Manny Marable, um, right. who famously authored you know the autobiography of Malcolm X, um, won a won a Pulitzer Prize. Um, Manny Marable um, basically introduced me to the black world um, in terms of scholarship and. When I was at Colgate, he he had just published his classic work, How Capitalism underdeveloped black America. And I remember taking classes with him and, you know, going to his office, you know, for hours on end, just talking about some of the themes and that work and the importance of thinking about race and class and the intersection of the two and thinking about the status of black people in the United States. And before I was done with college, a couple of years later, he published a book on African and Caribbean politics. Um, from Kwame and Krumah to Maurice Bishop. And mm. I remember him sharing, sharing drafts with me of that book and us talking about African and Caribbean politics. And I was super into it. Um, so, you know, I probably could have double majored, but it wasn't like a major available in Black Studies, but I took tons of courses alongside my philosophy uh, and a couple of courses in religion. Now, while all this was going on, 
but my my initial plan was to uh, go to law school. Uh, you know, I grew up in the in the projects, and you know, didn't have family that you know had you know made made the journey that I had made in terms of education, but all very supportive of of my journey, and 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 um, gave me all kinds of love and resources and support to to do it. Um, but my sort of dream as a kid was like, I want to be a Supreme Court justice. Right? I was, and I was a little naive. I thought I could just like want to be one and become one. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I said, well, what I got to do to do that? And they said, well, you got to get a law degree, even though that's not quite true. But I said, okay, well, I'll go get a law degree. So, so the plan was to go to law school and to, uh, you know, get a degree and then, you know, work, work my way to the Supreme Court. I was pretty, pretty, pretty set on that. And, and I just picked up philosophy and black studies because I was into it and I did well. And so... I took most of my courses in those in those disciplines. So I would say, Bob, I, I, you know, senior year came around and, and things got pretty, pretty serious. I started to say, OK, it's time to get ready for law school. And it's funny because I had an advisor in philosophy, Jerome Balmuth, and then I had Manny Marable in Black Studies. And I could tell both of them had other plans for me <laughs> and, 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 their, and, their, and their plans conflicted. So basically... Uh. Manny wanted me to go on and you know work in black studies and you know you know pick a discipline other than philosophy to study and do that and 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 Balmuth wanted me to go on to graduate school in philosophy and so so in the end you know Balmuth won out um, but but here's an interesting bit about about this story I don't think I've ever shared this um, uh, I applied. Thomas told me, hey, I just want you to apply to three or four graduate schools in philosophy, best schools. And if you get into one of them, we'll talk. If you don't, you go to law school. And it was mm-hmm. it was that simple. And one of the schools was Pitt. And when I got into Pitt, he said, you got to go to Pitt. I said, really? He said, yeah, I don't, I don't care what else you got going on. You got to go to Pitt. And I love Thomas. I love Marable, too. And I just said, okay, well, I, I, you know, I thought I gave it a little thought. I said, well... Professor B said, I got to go to Pitt to do philosophy. I didn't know what that would entail, but I said, okay, I'm going to do that. So two difficult conversations I had, one with my mother, <laughs> telling her I was going to go study philosophy and not go to law school to become a judge. And that didn't go so well. And then a conversation with Manny Marable, <laughs> telling him I was going to go study philosophy at Pittsburgh. And that didn't go over so well. But anyway, that's that's kind of what happened. And now the thing... The thing I didn't realize, Bob, then, but I realize now, especially having written this book, is so many ways in which Manny Marable is still in my head, kind of, and he's been in my head all these years. Right. So what I got out of my work in Black Studies as a, as a you know young kid in college, but you know very very studious. Um, when I when I studied with him, I got a sense of, you know, my you know uh, you know my my my, my kind of my kind of, you know, big, con- big concern was thinking about, you know, how to make sense of a nation that said it valued freedom, equality, and justice, but it all, it had slavery, it had Jim Crow, and, you know, it had all these disparities of the kind that you mentioned in your intro um, that tracked race, you know, very prominently. How to, how to make sense of that and what to do about that. And in, studying black studies in college, I got a couple of things. One, I got a lot of views about why we've ended up in this situation, what, how to diagnose the failure. 
And a lot of what I read talked about white supremacy. Um, but then, of course, I'm studying with a leftist democratic socialist. So I had to learn a lot about exploitation too, class exploitation mm -hmm. and, and the like and, and the role of capitalism. Um, so there's a lot of sort of diagnostic work that I got about how to understand the black condition. And then I had visions of kind of what I, I use the term blacktopia in my book, right? Visions right. of what a utopia would look like with black people in it. And there are different stories that were told about this. There was like the go back to Africa story. That's that's blacktopia. We're just going to get the hell out of here, pack up our shit. Oh, I'm sorry, pack up our stuff and go. <laughs> I thought, I forgot, we're not in the bar. It's, um, a, it's an adult program. It's okay. So, so pack, up, pack up our grip, right, Bob, and go back to Africa, you know, on a big ship. You know, of course, we got to raise some money to get this ship together and fuel it. But that's another story. You got to work with white people right. to do that. There, there, then there's another story, the Republic of New Africa I learned about. It's like, no, what are we going to do? We don't have to go to Africa. Look, we help build this land. We help build this nation. We need to go get some land in the United States, in the South somewhere, a bunch of states. Maybe they'll give us Mississippi and Alabama, some other places. And then we could basically have a sovereign territory for black people in the U.S. and just become our own nation you know, here on, on this land, you know, where we, where our ancestors labored and died. So there were different sort of views about like what Blacktopia, what the utopia, what the, what the, what the vision looked like. And I was really intrigued by that. Read some science fiction too. Sometimes a lot of this stuff has to be done in science oh, fiction. Yeah. In science fiction. I was first read Octavia Butler in college. I was like, oh, this is cool. So, <laughs> so, so there was like, there was this diagnostic stuff. There was this vision stuff about like what the, what the what the what the world looks like with like black people in it that's a better world and then there were all these questions about like how we get there right how we get from the mess we're in in the US and then globally to where we want to be and in that work i read a lot about pro social protests social movements resistance different kinds of resistance um different debates within sort of the history of black political thought about strategy and so forth. So I didn't know it at the time, Bob, but those three things, right, from black studies, thinking about the diagnostic bit, thinking about the vision bit, and thinking about the strategy bit, all sort of stayed with me. Right. And so Manny's question for me when I sort of said, look, I'm going to go to study philosophy. He says, how are you going to wrestle with black life and its problems doing philosophy? Right. It's a good question. Said, how are you, you going <laughs> to wrestle with that? He said, this is not a discipline that sort of was built one for us because you see there ain't no black people in the fly. He said, how many people he, he said, how many black people in this graduate program you think about going to? I said, I'm going to be the only one. Yeah. He, I, he said, only one. He said, any faculty? I said, no, he said, I'm going to be the only black person. They got a black staff person. I said. Um, right. And and so he was like, this is telling you, Derek, this is not where you're going to be able to wrestle with these things. Right. And so he was trying to make that case. It's not the discipline's not set up for you to do this. And it doesn't seem like this place, Pittsburgh, is set up for you to do it. So, so, so then, Bob, I, you know, I went to Pitt. Oh, that's, you know, what that life was like is another, another story. But he came, he came to visit me early on when I, you know, I had put together a conference. I invited him down. And I told him a little bit about my introduction to graduate school at Pittsburgh which he, he described as a Jim Crow introduction to graduate school. Um, and because I was kind of had to go through something that was a little strange, but, but during his visit, you know, 
I could tell he was a little sad, right? Because he was like, oh man, you're about to spend eight, eight, nine years getting this PhD. And at this point, that's not going to really support what you want to do. And, 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 and not enough people doing this kind of thing. And he introduced me to Dennis Brutus, who at the t- time taught at Pittsburgh. And he, he was a South African poet and activist who, who had become famous in part for um, getting South Africa banned from this, uh, the Olympics because of the apartheid. And he was, he was sort of a political prisoner and eventually exiled, came to the U.S. And I remember sitting with him and Dennis over a meal and it's like he was almost recruiting him to tell me, look, philosophy is don't do it. Get out, get out while you still can. <laughs> go somewhere, go somewhere else. Um, so anyway, here, here's 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 the point of this long introduction. Um, three things that have really sort of animated my work all these years, Bob. And 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 I think now I realize that I'm I'm trying to speak <laughs> to to my late my late professor and and and, and, and maybe like say, look, I understand you were disappointed, but but I'm gonna figure this out. I'm gonna figure out how to still be interested in the stuff you've taught me, but to also do this other thing that I got a knack for and that I really like. Right. And so what? How it happened was, I said, look, I want to I want to use my work to say something about why we got to fight for our rights as black people, and I want to use my work to say something about why we got to unite with other people to fight for our rights. <laughs> Right. And I want to say something about why we got to make sure that our many different identities that come into play when we start uniting with different people to fight for our rights don't undermine the fight. And Bob, man, it was like, honestly, I just came to this point of insight in recent years. And I feel like, you know, like I had this moment where I finally attained grandmaster status. You know, I used to watch a lot, a lot, a lot of martial arts movies and stuff. And I, I was trained as a martial artist when I was younger. And it's like, I finally, like, hit me, Bob, like, I'm a grandmaster now, right? Because I, I, I understand the point of what, what, I'm, what I'm doing and what I'm here for. And so I think with maturity, philosophers find their voice. And I think that's about understanding the audience, in part, understanding the audience, who the work is for, and understanding whose approval or disapproval matters to you. Yeah. Now, of course, we got professional audiences, Bob. We got to write for our colleagues, you know, pre-tenure, and you got to write for these journal referees who sometimes can be very difficult. Um, <laughs> we got to write for a, a, you know, a broader public in some cases. But then we got we to gotta ultimately be writing for people who understand the soul of our work. Right. And so this little introduction is, is meant to say something about, like, here, here's somebody that who really understand the soul of the work, even though I think ultimately he wouldn't, he wouldn't like the form it's taken over, over all right. these years being, being sort of articulated using the tools of analytic philosophy, if you see what I mean. Yeah. 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 So this is, so this is in part, not only the, uh, 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 some background to you as the author, but you're, you're telling us how you came to write the book. This is the, the product of some, internal working out of uh, the the various forces that have been pulling you in different directions for your whole career, starting perhaps as far back as your college days. Is that right? That's exactly right, Bob. <laughs> well, th- I got to say th- the book, um, the book has a kind of personal, um, I don't know what the right word is, a kind of personal uh, element to it mm-hmm. at certain points where 
um, it's very clear that um, although uh, at some point you're you're proceeding as philosophers do. Here are premises. Here's a conclusion. Here's a critique. Here's a. Um, it, it's it's at all the crucial junctures. Your personal investment uh, uh, in the work, I think, comes through uh, uh, pretty clearly, um, which is a refreshing aspect. Uh, is a, a refreshing feature to find in a philosophy book, I should say. <laughs> well, you know, th thank you. I mean, I, I'm kind of a, you know, I don't know if it's because I'm a Pisces or something, but I got like this high emotional IQ, they tell me. So hard for me sometimes <laughs> to hold those emotions in, you know, and, and it comes out, I think, sometimes in my writing. Well, that's wonderful. Can, can we talk a bit about uh, the, 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 some of the details of the, of the argument of the book? Would that be all right? Well, that would be good, although I do want to say a quick word about like how sure. I came to write the book, actually. Yeah, go for it. Because that, yeah, yeah. that was mainly about you know my origin story as a philosopher. But I think i got to get this other piece out for you, and Let's then we it. could go to yeah. the next question, because th this will really help you kind of ah, see the point of where this is coming from, right? Perfect. Yeah. Uh, so So... So Bob, I know you're you're a music guy too, <laughs> you know, and uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I say this. I think I say this in the, I say this in the, in the acknowledgments in the acknowledgement section of my book. I, I kind of I kind of approach this book like a like a recording artist approaches uh, putting out an album. You know, dropping you know single after single until eventually you'd be like, God, oh, just go ahead and release this album. <laughs> and so and so basically, the the first single I started to work on, I started to work on in earnest around the time Obama was making his first run for the White House. Right. And at the time, Bob, I was teaching at the University of Kansas. And in addition to teaching in philosophy, I taught in KU School of Law. Right. And so I was, I was surrounded by, by lawyers, law students. And of course, you know, this, this all partly explains why I'm fascinated with legal reasoning, right? I had to teach these sort of this, this seminar, which is effectively a joint seminar in philosophy and law. And so I had to rely on case law and, and a lot of what I, what I taught, right? Uh, and so um, in around 2008 or so, I organized a symposium on reparations for the Kansas uh, school, the, the KU Law Review. And at the time, as, as, as I'm sure you'll remember, during Obama's candidacy, there were lots of sort of there's lots of conversation, lots of questions raised about whether electing Obama you know meant that America had finally turned the corner on racism, yeah. and it, and you know we, we finally sort of achieved King's dream, and you know you know we could we could sort of we could you know get up, applaud, we could shout, we could dance, we could holler. Um, but but now we we need to we need to put the chill on 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 all this fussing about racism, right? Because look, we yeah. we we turned the corner, and then some people said, well, maybe now black people finally get reparations that they've been waiting for for so long because Obama gonna kind of step to the plate and get us that, and so you know people had had lots to say. Now now it's interesting, like in terms of my my career trajectory, I've had and I would say the good fortune to teach in really blue and really red states. I know we're not using that language so much now, but we use it a lot back then. Um, so prior to being at Kansas, I had been in the, I had been in the heart of Texas in College Station where I taught at Texas A&M. All right. And then prior to that, I was, my first job was at Northwestern in Evanston. And mm -hmm. so, so basically this, you got to understand what this meant. This meant that I was like surrounded 
by in environments where I wasn't just hearing the sort of typical kind of liberal northeast liberal arguments about whatever it was, right? I was I was in middle of Texas, you know, really red. I was in Kansas, um, and I and they had different they had different perspectives sure. on 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 these matters of race. And so, for my contribution to this law review symposium, basically, I was reflecting on why I was somewhat skeptical about the prospects of success for normative arguments for reparations that were tethered to having to think a certain way about the the reasons why we were still stuck with some of these disparities that were rooted in considerations of racial discrimination. Mm-hmm. Because I was surrounded by a lot of people that just didn't buy that particular story. And and, and and some of these people, you know, I mean, I shouldn't say like it, in this way. I mean, these were, these were not just you know, any people. These were some learned people too, in, in many cases, scholars and, yeah. and, you know, people that were sophisticated in politics. They, they just had different takes on, on these matters. And so, so, so one, one insight that, that sort of was, 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 you know, looming large for me is, is like in thinking about how to make progress in America or continue progress, even with a black president sort of at the helm, we have to take seriously the depth of people's differences about why, where we were and why we were where we were. And, yeah. and some of these differences had to do with real differences in how to think about whether we've actually attained progress in the relevant sense. And if we have it, differences in, 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 in explaining why we have it attained it. Some had to do with race, but in other cases, some, some of the people I was surrounded by, they, like, they talked a lot about the significance of people t- making the right choices, yeah. people taking responsibility. They talked about character. They talked about the work ethic and things of that sort. When they told a story about how to make sense of some of these uh, durable racial inequalities, right? So there was, there was sort of, for some people, a, a kind of race fatigue, you might say, Bob, and 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 so I wrote this paper um, for this law review entry. And the case I was thinking about is a case now that's in the news. It's funny, all these years later, the Grutter versus Bollinger decision, right, in which the Supreme Court, you know, had to sort of pivot to try to defend the continued continued practice of taking race into account in. Um, admissions decisions. In this case, it would have to do with the law school at the University of Michigan. And right. ultimately, the, the tactic that the court had to use in this sort of moment where people were sort of dealing with race fatigue was to say that there were important educational benefits to diversity. Right. And racial diversity is one kind of diversity among other kinds. And we need to defer to universities and their expertise about how to sort of deliver the educational sort of product that they deliver. And if they decide diversity is valuable for that, then we need to sort of allow them to do that. Right. If we, if we want to respect, you know, their, their role as, as, as an institution that's, you know, providing a certain sort of function and value in society. And so, but, but the, but the reason the court had to do that was because there were, there were people, including members of the court, in fact, that, had had changing views about the continued significance of racial discrimination and accounting for some 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 kinds of uh, educational outcomes, and so for me, including this, Justice Thomas, exactly, I guess. including yeah, yeah, Justice yeah. Thomas. So so in yeah. my in my thinking, 
I really was thinking about the, 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 the majority opinion was written by Justice O'Connor and Justice right. Thomas had a, a, a very lengthy dissent. And I, and I studied the dissent. And, and, and basically after reading the dissent, you know, I, I, I came away with roughly this broad question. How do we defend, defend practices, policies, and agendas, right, aimed to secure racial justice and to secure rights for, for black folk? where views of the kind that Justice Thomas articulated in that dissent are far from marginal in the United States, but are very much a part of mainstream thinking in the courts, in Congress, and in society at large. Yeah, and also, um, even if ultimately um, uh, criticizable, objectionable, not lightweight intellectually, I would add. Mm -hmm. Does that seem right? That's absolutely right. Yeah. That's absolutely right. I mean, Thomas's view, you could disagree with it, but it's it it's something to be disagreed with rather than just set aside as 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 silly. Absolutely something to be disagreed with. And and I and I had I had when I was working on this, I remember having friends, but why the hell are you spending your time reading Justice Thomas's dissents? Right? Like what's why are you giving him why are you giving him the time of day? And yeah. you know, I just I did I said, look, I mean, what what I want to see about these arguments. Right. I mean, what, what, what kind of arguments are being made? Let's let's look at these arguments. Let's think about them. These are things we're going to have to reckon with, whether they're coming from him or, or one of your neighbors or, or right. the politician that's running for office. That's going to have a say in what resources get allocated or not allocated in certain communities. And, right. and, and, and so, you know, some of this, a lot of this labor, Bob, has just been done, you know, in the trenches. And you, and you just got to you got to be committed to doing it. And, and there are going to be times when people just don't see the point. Why are you even bothering? But. You know, for me, I just thankfully that that didn't dissuade me from doing the work, you know. Right. Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, we could we could go. We'd go to, <laughs> I, 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 I didn't want to distract you, but I thought it was important to sort of say say that bit before yeah. we got into the analysis. of the. Oh, fantastic. That's that. And that um, having that little having that bit, I think, helps contextualize some of uh, uh, some of the broader themes. Um, so why don't we start with you know the, the one of the um, conceptual moves that, that 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 sort of is at the core of the argument of the book uh, we've already sort of touched on but uh, you know you, you make this distinction between sort of small tent and big tent approaches to um, making progress with respect to social justice. Um, and, you know, as I said in the introductory remarks, you know, the, there's an intuitive force to the thought that um, when we see disparities that look like they are um, unjust, uh, there's a kind, of, a, a kind of prioritarian thought. You know, the people who are at the sharp end of the disparities um, ought to be given priority in our thinking about remedies and interventions. And if the disparities are tightly tethered to racial categorizations, then it looks as if the way we formulate our social justice agenda is going to make sort of reference to those racial categories. And you want to pull us, pull us back from that and talk about uh, what you call big tent uh, um, uh, kind of thinking about social justice. Can you just lay out roughly the, that that distinction uh, and the conceptual work that goes into it? Yeah, so good. Um, 
you know, Bob, I struggle with this. Um, I struggle with the, uh, I mean, you know, one of the things, I guess, I, I, one of the important things, if, if you're trained, to, you know, as a philosopher, certainly within the analytic tradition is, uh, you know, we traffic in distinctions, don't we, Bob? Um, we, 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 that's not the only thing we traffic in, but we do traffic in distinctions. Um, we, you know. And putting it as trafficking, I think, is a little bit optimistic. Sometimes we get mired in them too. Wow, we get mired. Bob, we get mired in distinctions. And I was, I was, I was puzzling about this damn thing. I like, I need a, I need a distinction. And it's 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 a it's always a little bit, you know, unnerving because you know, I mean, great philosophers are, are this is what we get trained to do. We we see the distinction and we're we're ready. We got the, all the counterexamples lined up and, you know, and, and and none of them are ever perfect, right? So right. So let me let me just sort of start first with the like the the, you know, um, with the um, with the race specific kind of. Sure. Uh, kind of small tent thing. Uh, let's let's just start with that first, and then we we circle back and get get to the big 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 tent sort of suggestions. Sure. So so I guess a little bit more context just just for now to set this set this explanation up that that might be useful. So as part as part of um uh, attaining grandmaster status in philosophy, Bob, uh, <laughs> recently, um, I, I got a I got enlightenment about. You know how how my overall philosophical program hang hangs together. Like, you know, I I now understand Darbyanism. You know, in a way that I didn't. You know, <laughs> before I take grandmaster status, Bob. So so actually, this this book, A Realistic Blacktopia: Why We Must Unite to Fight, is book two of a trilogy. Ah, is is what what I what I figured out, and so. The first book in the trilogy is is my my first book uh, called Rights, Race, and Recognition, mm-hmm. and the the argument of that book was that the, the thesis of that book, I should say, is is that we we got to fight for our rights. You know, all rights are in some sense products of social recognition, and I rejected the idea that they're natural rights. And I got right. you know I took a lot of heat for doing that, but that was that's what I did in that first book. Now. The second book right here in the trilogy is is arguing for the thesis that we got to unite, as I said earlier, we got to unite to fight for these rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and then there's going to be uh, maybe if we have time at the end, I'll tell you about the about the third book that's in the works and and to complete the trilogy. Now, for me, it's important. I've already done this, but I'll just restate it to distinguish different kinds of um, concerns the philosopher may she may have. Um, she's thinking about um, race in, in America. Um, she 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 might want to have some diagnosis um, about, uh, for example, you know, why people weren't afford why black people weren't afforded rights, or why the status their their social status was different from the status of, of white people. If they want to sort of analyze things strictly in racial terms, so. You might want to take up questions that have to do with trying to figure all that out and then telling some story about why. Um, you might want to spend some time thinking about, again, what the, what the utopia looks like, right? What the, what the, what the, what the black promised land would look like uh, and, and then talk about like what values sort of have to be instantiated to sort of pull that off. A value that shows up a lot in my work 
is, is as you know from looking at the book, is the value of dignity. I, I kind of like that as a concept, and I like it in part because it's a concept that I find operative in the thinking of a, a lot of Black folk in the in the Black tradition, uh, in, in in the Black radical tradition in particular. And so I, I just sort of read that out of my reading of the history that, that that's an important value. Um, and then the other question that you want to think about is this question about progress. How we get from the messy world that we're in, some people might talk about the non-ideal world, to the, the, a more ideal world. Like, how do, we, how do we get closer to approaching that utopia, however we want to sort of constitute it? Like, I haven't spent a lot of my time thinking about how to fill a utopia in. You know, I, I just sort of has, have a placeholder for that. But I've been interested in this question about progress. And this book is written to speak to that question. Right. How we make progress under certain circumstances. Right. And what are the circumstances, the circumstances in which there are lots of people that are somewhat fatigued with race or they have very different explanations or outlooks about race than what, you know, progressive folk, progressive thinking folk might have about race matters. Right. right? So. So the book is, is dealing with how, what's the path to progress argumentatively under certain conditions where, let's say, differences, there are differences about the relevance of racial discrimination, let's say, in determining people's life prospects. And these differences run deep. Uh, you know, as, as you, 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 I use this terminology of post-racialism, which was really big around the time Obama, Obama was running. There's a lot of talk about, right. is, is America post-racial, so forth, and there's still talk about post-racialism. Um, so that was my way of sort of just marking this sort of set of views that basically sort of pointed to this different different thing going on. Now, you know, you could put this, we could put this another way, right? How to make progress in a nation where over 74 million people, Bob, voted for Donald Trump in his right. second run for the White House, right? right? Biden got 81 million. Trump got 74. Now, how to make sense of racial progress in a nation where he lost the popular vote to Hillary Clinton, right, in 2016, in an election where he got nearly 62 million votes. Yeah. She got 63 and, and, a, and some change. Right. Now, that happened three years after the Shelby County voting rights ruling, which I know we're going to talk about. Right. So, so my question is like, okay, philosophers, let's talk about like these issues of racial justice, racial equality how to get there. We got to have some sense of what principles we want to guide us. Sure, sure enough. But if we're thinking about progress, we have to have our conversation factor in what we're up against, the, the reality of the conditions that we find ourselves in. And so there are different ways that this reality sort of impacts us, I think, or ought to impact us. There can be just simple differences about how you measure progress, racial progress in the U.S. So you might have the view that you have racial progress if you end overt racial discrimination, right? If you make it the right. case that black and white kids can now go to the same schools, if you make it the case that black people can go to lunch counters and sit with white people, right? If you effectively end unequal treatment in the law, then you've, you, 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 you've solved your problem. Right. You, you've made it the kind of progress that you should have made. And, and, it, and you've made the kind of progress that, you know, is required of us to make. Right. Now, you could have another view. You could say, well, not so fast. 
you, of course, you might argue about the extent to which we still have lingering forms of overt racial discrimination. We still have, you know, unequal treatment in the law. You could still, you could still sort of try to make that case. People, for example, make that case when they think about the criminal justice system um, today, for example. So, so set that aside. Obviously, we could do that. But you could have another view about progress that says, well, look, not just about those things, right? But it's also about looking at these gross disparities in income, in wealth, in housing, in health outcomes, um, et cetera. And to make racial progress, we got to close those gaps, right? Because the, the, the presence of the gaps for some people is sort of presumptive evidence that something fishy is going on. Right. You right. got to tell some wacky story to explain why black people are disproportionately worse off in all these categories. What's the story about that? Well, it's, it's got to be probably this race operating in ways that we're not sort of being 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 uh, fully uh, uh, forthright about. Right. Now, here's here's the difficulty. People say, wait a minute now. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure a just society requires that there not be any disparities because, you know, in some cases, these disparities don't have to do with race, but they they could have to do with other things. And again, this is where you get into choices, personal responsibility, work ethic, right? All, all these all these other factors that are not just unarbitrary from the moral point of view, you might say. So I, the time I was spending in Texas and Kansas in a and, 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 and don't think I didn't see this even in, in liberal places like Northwestern, but I saw it there too. You see it in New York City. I mean, you, it, 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 you see it all over. People have these other kinds of explanations, these other kinds of moves. So when they're thinking about how to measure progress. So, 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 so come back to the point, you know, in this time when Trump could get that many votes, in this time when people have race fatigue, you got also people have different views about how to measure progress. I just sort of indicated, you know, two different approaches to that, I think. Now, the past regime, right, let's say pre-civil rights, I mean, maybe we might say, Bob, there was like just more kind of willingness to sort of entertain the fact that America had some real race problems because it was in our face, it was overt. And there was a more openness to sort of remedies that kind of targeted discrimination against black people, right, as such. This is a stain on the nation. We got to sort of clean it up. And right. there was more openness then to taking affirmative action as something like you know, LBJ said, look, we got to take affirmative action. We got to sort of clean this mess up. And so people said, okay, we got to clean this mess up. And so affirmative action, an instance of a small tent remedy. Another thing, and I, I think we'll talk about when we get to the, to the Shelby County decision, subjecting states voting regulations to federal oversight to guard right. against racially discriminatory rules. Right. And now doing that, of course, we're mindful of this history of of states like like Georgia, like Tennessee, like Alabama, using all kinds of discriminatory practices to keep black people from voting. And of course, not just, you know, you know, black people primarily from voting, but but they've also they also kept other people from voting too. something that Du Bois obviously was very mindful of when he was writing (laughs) around the time that we would try to, to pass the amendment to to make uh, voting discrimination based on sex uh, unconstitutional, right? But right. but but so th- that was sort of those were times when people say, okay, yeah, we got to target race, right? Now, in this new regime, 
right? As I said, some people think we, we, we kind of more or less did that, right? We might have some little cleanup work to do, but more or less we took care of the problem when we passed the civil rights laws um, and, and, and other other sort of measures. Now, now, now it's time for now. Now the time is is time to move on. And and on top of that, we just elected the black president, right? So that was part of the talk, right? So, I my view about the about the small tent is that it sort of represents this the set of kind of interventions and remedies that are proposed uh, to consider the issues of a, a, a group of people under a smaller tent, whether it be blacks, Latinos, or what have you, and then to target remedies to address, address their situation. Now, doing that presumes that in some way racism against these groups is targeted, it still matters, and so these kinds of poly, policies are in order. Now, right. I agree certainly with the first claim. I think racism still matters. It's not, it's not like I haven't I haven't drunk the post-racial Kool-Aid. I mean, something, something I gotta always <laughs> tell people. I said, come on now, I, I haven't drunk that Kool-Aid, but a lot of people have. Right? Right. Now, but I got I have concerns about the second one. Why? Because these kinds of policies are hard sell. I mean, yeah. you got you can't sell these in America. So so that means they can't be the only remedies, Bob, in our arsenal. They can't right. be the only remedies in our toolkit. And so, can, can, and so, can I, and so, so basically, I think in part of the evidence of the demise, ha, in part, have to do with the Grutter decision. But anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no, no sure, no. Let me. Just, um... Uh, so c- could you say a little bit? So w- one of the things I've always enjoyed about your work, and it, it's certainly p- one of the uh, features of, of, of the book, is the way in which you're aware of the importance of tracking and noticing and 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 following the social scientific data, particularly about the, the political psychology of the citizenry. <laughs> so part of, you know, one, I think, sort of central move that stri- strikes me as um deeply compelling uh, uh, in the argument of the book and in some of your earlier work is, you know, we're not talking, you know, the, the issue about whether the United States has achieved post-racial status is one kind of question that you might be invested in in all kinds of, of ways. But there's a separate question about how many people believe that the answer to the first question is yes. And when you're dealing with a population, when you're dealing with a citizenry that is largely convinced that post-racialism has been achieved or nearly achieved or uh, um, uh, was achieved a long time ago and perhaps when we elected Obama, um, you know, that matters uh, for how we think about and design policies for addressing remaining, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, lapses of social justice with respect to race. So, can you tell us a little bit about that th- that role of the thinking? And then I, I, I do want to get into the, you know, one of the ways that you you say, look, the psychology is in part what's driving and is evident in the Shelby County uh, versus Holder decision. Okay, cool. I'll, I'll, thanks, Bob. I'll, I'll be very brief on the first point so we can get to the second. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so, Bob, I got to tell you, man. I mean, this is. I don't want this to be like a confessional, man, but but it may get to that. And I, something about your voice too, man. It's just making me feel like I gotta I gotta let it all out now. I gotta I gotta tell it, but I gotta be I gotta just I gotta be mindful. So look, man, I had one of the one of the great one of the great highlights of my time at University of Kansas was my time in the law school, 
And the other part of it was all the time I spent, Bob, with social scientists. Right. So they had an institute uh, at KU that was sort of entirely sort of a network of social scientists. And 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 I I was like one of the first humanists to ever have like an affiliation with this institute, and I spent my time, the real quality time that I most enjoyed with either people in law school or social scientists, and the the in both cases, the time spent taught me a lot, and it led, and it led to very productive teaching and research collaborations, Bob where I was writing grant proposals, writing articles, eventually wrote a book with people in, in other disciplines outside of philosophy. Yeah. And Bob, I felt like I had to do this for the reason you just gave, because I, I want to raise some concern about how the reality of people's moral psychology and racial attitudes on the ground as they show up in public opinion surveys, as they show up in studies of uh, uh, social psychology. I also collaborated and wrote a couple of pieces with a social psychologist, Nyla Branscombe. One of the chapters in my book is sort of cl- collaboration with her. So, Bob, I, I had to go through tons of material to try to sort of just get a good feed on this stuff. But this wasn't my training. And so I, I had to have some humility. I, I, and I didn't want to just cherry pick the, the yeah. material, Bob, which I, which I think is a, a danger when a philosopher stretches out. You, you kind of cherry pick the stuff that sounds good, helps, you know, helps, helps confirm your priors or whatever. I didn't want to do that. I said, look, let, let me just sort of get into collaboration with some of these folks and let there be a division of labor. I can do some of the normative lifting, some of the stage setting, some of the conceptual framing, and they could sort of do the empirical, you know, grinding stuff. And I could know that they've sort of have a proper sense of what's what. And that's, and that's what I did. So, my interest in this question of progress, Bob, got me to take this social science stuff very seriously. So, so much so that I decided I had to invest a lot of my time into studying it, into spending time with social scientists, and ultimately in collaborating with them. And that's what I did. Right. Right. So how, does, how do the results that you've gleaned there help us understand uh, some of the jurisprudence, particularly the Shelby decision? Okay. And the Voting Rights Act. Yeah. Okay. Well, now, there are a couple cases I try to do this analysis with. This is one of them. And right. I mean, some some of what happens is is sort of is sort of. I mean, I I wave my hands at on on a couple of points, and then other points I sort of I, I take it up in my in in, in sort of you know, elaborate footnotes. But 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 let me just sort of say what you know, what I think the significance of that ruling was for me. Um, um, so as I already said, I mean, I, I kind of, I was teaching in a law school and spending my time around lawyers. And so I found these legal rulings to be an illuminating source, right. For, for, for teaching purposes. And also for, for me getting a better understanding of the psychology of, of, of post-racial thinking, so to speak. I mean, if we'll continue to use that term. And so the, for me, the, the Shelby County um, um, ruling, uh, decision about the Voting Rights Acts, Act is, 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 an, is another illustration of post-racial thinking in action. And I wanted to show that it, the reasoning in that decision helped to highlight the limits 
of race specific reasoning, race targeted reason. So let me say a little bit about about the ruling. So good. So the ruling was issued in, in 2013. Um, and so here, here's what was at issue. Basically, um, state voting laws, Bob, are subject to the, the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Right. And so this yeah. is one of the pillars of the historic civil rights legislation that the U.S. passed in the, in the 60s. And many people worked to get that passed. Obviously, Martin Luther King, you know, played an important role. Uh, you know, he, he was there when LBJ, you know, signed signed the act in, into law. Um, and now the, the Voting Rights Act required that certain states had to get federal preclearance before changing their voting laws. And um, there's a section of the Voting Rights Act, Section 4B, which, which uh, is called the coverage formula. And, and the coverage formula, Bob, singled out states like Alabama and, and others mm-hmm. and, uh, with egregious histories of 15th Amendment violations. Right. You know, so these are histories where they use poll taxes, literary, lit- literacy t- uh, tests, and other kinds of devices. Um, and, and, and so the, the coverage formula basically singled out these states and, and, and then said they had to get pre-approval before they changed their, their rope, their voting laws. Right. Because look, you, you, you know, you know, you, you were a bad actor. Right. And so we got, we got to sort of have some oversight. Now, I think, I think I'm not, I can't remember exactly this. The original, the original act said that voting rights act said that these were meant to be temporary measures. And then I think around 2005, 2006, there was a reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act. And it was going to be renewed. Now, this is crazy, right? That the Voting Rights Act is it has to get renewed every so many years. It was going to be <laughs> that's also another thing we should be talking, we should be talking yeah. about, Bob. It the, it was renewed for another 25 years, right? And it left in place the coverage formula. Right. So what happened was Shelby County, Alabama which is a jurisdiction covered by the uh, the preclearance requirement, which is Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, and the coverage formula basically sued for judgment that the preclearance requirement and the coverage formula were unconstitutional. Now, the, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote, who wrote the 5-4 majority opinion, and, and we don't have time, but I got a story about when I met Roberts, uh, that's 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 life changing too. He he invalidated the court invalidated section four yeah. B, the coverage formula, but they didn't rule on section five. Right. So that was an interesting move, and there was a lot of misunderstanding about this. I think at the time, they did not rule that the that the preclearance requirement was unconstitutional. They ruled that the coverage formula was unconstitutional. Now, 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 the reasoning for that was incredible. So basically, I mean, sketch, okay, the Voting Rights Act was passed when, obviously, racial discrimination was at the forefront of American life. Obvious, right? And, and again, the thinking was that we needed, we needed to guard against, uh, against racial discrimination and, and to scrutinize, right, the, the activities of known state offenders, right? And... So basically, the coverage formula was was the, the the legislature's effort to identify this group of offenders, and and say, look, we we were justified in our racial suspicion 
of these of of these covered states, right? And 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 that view was more or less unchallenged because we had all this sort of egregious history we could point to. Right. Now, in the 2013 ruling, right, which is which is just three years before before Trump, you know, Ro- Roberts articulated, I think, in that decision, a sentiment that is widely shared on the question of racial discrimination significance. And the sentiment was, that was then, this is now. (laughs) Right. That was then, this is now. Since then, we've made racial progress. And so because we've made racial progress, the current conditions that we find in the United States no longer warrant measures that depart from what he called or what the court called a principle of equal state sovereignty. Now, there was a lot of, Bob, as you might remember, there was a lot of chatter about that. I mean, there were were people saying, where did did the court pull that from, right? I mean, there was a lot of fuss about that. But but basically, and, and, and underlying this principle of equal state sovereignty was the idea that states had to be treated with equal dignity. So you got to treat Alabama (laughs) with the same equal dignity that you treat California and New York with. Right. Now, so here's the key maneuver. Roberts basically forced a yes, no, (laughs) a yes or no answer to the question of racial progress. He said, look, if we say no, (laughs) there's not been any racial progress since 1965. Then the case for scrapping the Voting Rights Act seems even stronger. That's right. Good. Right. Good. Why should right. we keep a law intact that's been it's entirely ineffective yeah. for 50 years? Yeah, right. Okay, so that's the first move, right? Now, the other response might be, well, look, we're not saying that there's not been any progress. There's surely been some progress, but not enough to justify scrapping the coverage formula. But see, all the majority needed was to say that things are somewhat better. That's right. Right? And then that was then, this is now, things are somewhat better, and we should at least rethink this coverage formula now in view of the fact that things are better. So it may be, for example, that some states that were covered back then are not covered now. Some states that weren't covered back then, like maybe some of these blue states, (laughs) right, may need to be covered. And that was the move. And so that was an illustration of how I thought the power of this sort of this thinking that that shows a different kind of take on racial progress could disrupt the continuation of policies that would that required a certain kind of race sensitivity, Bob. Right, right. Right. You, I, mean, I, no, I hope that makes sense. That was a little long-winded, no, no, too. I'm sorry. No, no, no. That's perfect. So, you know, we're, we're running out of time, but it's I, – I, 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 yeah, but it's okay to go a little bit over because I want to make sure that um, uh, that we get into, um, you know, sort of two other sort of central themes. And maybe what I'm going to ask you to do is, okay. uh, we're, as we're both musicians, sort of riff on this. Okay. Right? Okay, cool, cool. Uh, so – um, you know, so one is that you know the 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 kind of um, reasoning that you just laid out on the part of Justice Roberts. Yes. Uh, p- part of the claim is that um, uh, there is a um, a more popular uh, f- in form uh, version of that very line of reasoning that's inherent 
in any small tent approach to uh, pro uh, to progress with racial justice and that you could see in popular attitudes about racial justice, a similar kind of uh, train of thought that, well, it's so much better now. True. <laughs> Therefore, uh, you know, the... Um, whatever small tent interventions that we might have been considering or implementing uh, um, must have done their job. So we don't need to continue them. But the, the thing I wanted to focus on is sort of the, the, the see if you can um, sort of mash these two together um, and do a mashup. Um, so one is that, uh, you know, the arguments about um, the need um, and here you're, you're drawing some um, inspiration from, I think, an underappreciated element of Rawls's thinking, the need for stability, that part of what it is to think about justice in institutional terms uh, is to think about the effect on the moral psychology of the subjects, the people living under those institutions. And so that's part of the question of justice is, how you know will institutions designed according to my conception you know be self-sustaining be 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 a, a source of their own stability so I, I want and part of your critique of short you know of small tent um remedies is that they don't satisfy that right okay now i want you to to put that together with the 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 series of arguments that close the book about democracy and about the dignity of being a participant in a self-governing community and the therefore the importance of of voting and voting access think you could put that together in about Damn, uh, Bob, know, eight minutes Bob, Bob, <laughs> listen if, Bob, if that was a final exam question in the philosophy class i I would flunk, man. <laughs> Bob, that's a hard question, man. I would be done, man. <laughs> I would flunk, man. Goodness gracious, I'm so glad I got my PhD already, man. So, so, all right, man. Look, look, look. Just real, real quick. I mean, that's. Yeah. I mean, that's that's such a hard question, but that's real quick, man. So. Because obviously we don't have time for Rawls exegesis, right? But 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 the, yeah, but, yeah, the, but, but the point yeah. is this, okay? I don't think anybody has time for <laughs> well, Rawls exegesis yeah, these days, anymore. These days, <laughs> these days, but but that's a shame. That's right. I mean, that's a shame. I think I think we could we could you know we could benefit from a little bit of that here every now and then. So listen, okay. So so how how we make the journey from our non-ideal mess that we're in when it comes to to race that some of us believe we're still in to a more ideal place. Now, I dedicate my book to the late philosopher Charles Mills, who, who right. was a, a, you know, a, a, a friend, an inspiration to me. The book is dedicated to his memory. And a giant. A giant, period, a giant. Yeah, a giant. Absolutely, yeah. just say it, a giant. Beyond grandmaster. Exactly, that's exactly right. Yeah. So, yeah. so I dedicate the book to Charles, and of course he's famous for you know, we were interlocutors and, and we, we saw eye to eye about many things. He inspired me in many ways, but there are some, some things we dis disagreed about. Right. So to make, to make the journey from the non-ideal to the more ideal, Mill said, look, we're going to need principles of corrective justice. And, um, and, and, and we're also going to need white allies to, to, to make that journey with us because, because, because black people on the bus by themselves is not going to get us to the racial promised land. Now, now, I bring in uh, 
what I think are, you know, insufficiently appreciated, not not by there's exceptions to this, but insufficiently appreciated Rawlsian considerations about the importance of principles being able to secure a sense of justice. Right. And and that has to do with tapping into what you just pointed out, the relevance of moral psychology and helping us think through our being able to get behind what justice demands of us. And so what I do is I take that idea and pair it with all these kinds of social psychological considerations about the limits of sort of white support for targeted policies of different kinds. Now, in, in Mills's case, essentially, I mean, he has a, a fairly strong view about what what racial justice uh, uh, re- requires. I mean, his, his view basically is, is that, you know, racial justice is not just about preemptive measures to prevent injustice, but it's about corrective, corrective measures, right? right? To rectify injustice that, that have occurred. So he, he got like what I call a sort of, you know, justice as, as rectification view. That's a strong view. Yeah. So, so the sense of justice idea from Rawls says, look, can, can we count on people, those kinds of principles being able to sort of elicit people's sense of justice to gain support as we make the transition from an ill-ordered, unjust society to a more well-ordered one. And I say, well, look, if all the stuff, Mills, that you've written about, about whites, white psychology, like he, he, Mills himself said around 98, 99, he said, he said in, in the United States, the white majority's moral psychology is shaped not just by class, but by the racial structure, right? He talked about this heron folk ethic. And he said, this racial psychology is characterized by settled expectations of white privilege and a blurred moral vision and diminished affect where the plight of black people are concerned. And I said to him, I said, look, Charles, amen, I agree with you on that. But that's bad. <laughs> I said, I said, that's bad for you because if things are like that, then we have reason to think that your principles of rectificatory justice can't command the sense of justice that's required to get us with these allies from an ill-ordered to a well-ordered society. Right. Yeah. That was my argument with Mills on that point. That seems compelling to me, by the way, for what it's okay, worth. Okay, so, so that was that okay. was super concise on that, but but that's kind of yeah. the spirit of what I did on that. Now, so now that the people say, okay, Darby, you know, maybe you convinced us that the small tent approach has got issues, this and that, but look, can you get around this? Can you sort of avoid appeal to kind of race race conscious considerations or race specific reasoning? in trying to sort of make a case for why the ally should move forward with us, right? And so here's where the, the second part of the book comes from, working in part through Rawls, through W.E.B. Du Bois, and through Martin Luther King to highlight this, this and, and, and also thinking about, right, how Shelby County used the equal dignity of states to, to justify yeah. weakening the Voting Rights Act. I said, look, let's take dignity and make a, an affirmative case for expanding the scope of democracy, but in a way that doesn't rely on the kinds of contentious racial assumptions that the likes of of of, of Justice Thomas and uh, Justice Roberts and others are going to sort of have a problem with. Right. So the strategy was, in in one case, to try to defend the principle of unencumbered access to voting right to voting rights relying on a creative interpretation of Rawls's fair value of uh, fair, fair guaranteeing the fair value of political liberties 
And so also a compelling account yeah. seems to me a compelling treatment of that. Yeah. So, so, so it, that was a move. I said, look, this is, I want to show proof of concept. I can tell you why we should give people greater access to voting and not have to rely on things that are going to sort of ruffle the feathers of Thomas and Roberts. And, and, right. and, and I tried to appropriate the fair value argument eventually allowed me to talk about the unfairness of having your vote turn on differences in resource disparities, which right. happens right. if you require ID of people who don't have the time, money um, to, to, to get the, to get the ID more hurdles that they got to climb compared to the resource yep. rich. And, and, right. and so, I mean, I, there's more to, as you know, the argument than that, but that was sort of the ballpark. And, and then what I do is I say, well, look, and you turn to King's thinking. And when you turn to Martin Luther King, what you get out of his view is you get sort of more of a normative argument for guaranteeing the voting, the, the, the right to vote that's rooted in, in two basic ideas. One, generally, it's rooted in the value of dignity, taking it to be a source of inherent value. And so right. on King's interpretation, Voting promotes our deliberative capacity in the political sphere, right? It, it promotes our ability to, to have a say in making laws to which we're subject. And so that's one, one sort of source of the inherent value of dignity. And having a system of voting rights guarantees that we're respecting that value. And then the other thing it does is it makes sure that when, it shows that when we have a say in how things come go politically, we're not going to be subject to the political domination of others. And so right. in that way, it contributes to what, what I call a leveling up or universalizing of an honorific social rank to all dignified creatures. There, I, 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 I owe a great debt to some of Jeremy Waldron's excellent work on, on dignity yeah. as social rank. I kind of riff a little bit on that. So, so King gives us sort of a normative grounding for why we want to have under, unencumbered access Rawls gives us some resources to, to argue for unencumbered access. And then Du Bois gives us some resources to say how democracy ultimately will fail if it excludes people. Um, right. um, and so that's kind of how I put that together in the last part of the book. Well, that's that's fantastic. You know, we've only uh, to the folks who are listening, you know, we've only scratched the surface, really, of this, Man. you know, really fantastic book. But I, um, with the last couple of minutes, um, you know, you mentioned that this is a this is the second in a in a trilogy. Um, what's the next project look like? If you can uh, g uh, give us a sketch. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Bob. So just 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 one. I'll say very, very briefly. So the, the third book in the trilogy of uh, uh, Grandmaster Darby. Um, is is I'm, I'm this is I'm most proud of. It actually is a co-authored book, Bob, with uh, Dr. Eduardo Martinez, who I know you oh, you, right, you sure. know. Um, I supervised Eduardo's dissertation at Michigan when I was still there, and he's absolutely just brilliant. He's, a, he's just a genius political philosopher, and yeah, we're good. collaborating to write this book. And the title of the book, Oxford is also publishing it, and it's gonna it's gonna be following pretty shortly. Um, the title right. of the book is called Boxed In, Making, right. Making Identities Safe for Democracy. And basically, that defends the thesis to basically engage in this united fight for our rights. We got to appreciate heterogeneity, right? Particularly heterogeneity within our groups and heterogeneity with respect to people that we might need to be allies with. Good. And we got to make sure that differences in our sort of how we see the world in some respects 
don't undermine our ability to engage in larger coalitions to fight for a broader measure of justice, as the Bois would put it, where we're fighting for things like, you know, better jobs for uh, uh, better health care, uh, education, uh, uh, and, and, and things that we, we sort of see as common problems that we that we all live with, so to speak. So we basically, this book is almost done and uh, it's also going to be published by Oxford, uh, I'm happy to say. And um, and so that's the that's the next the next step, and then and then it, then we got the old trilogy on the table. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I should also say, Bob, to- that my 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 firm belief is that that I'm I'm a little head here, and I'm probably writing for people that are going to live a hundred years from now. You know, I, <laughs> I, I I've always felt like I was like oh, I think I'm a little head of this one, and and. and you know, I don't know, Bob. Maybe, maybe like somebody will dig up this podcast a hundred years from now. You know, and it'll lead them to the Darby trilogy, and they'll be like, "That's it. Why weren't they read? Why didn't they read Darby back then when he was doing all this stuff?" You know, I don't know, Bob. You know, but you know, I just could write the stuff. I can't make people read it. You know. Uh, well, um, you know, uh, the book that you've just published, so Realistic Blacktopia, uh, I, I, I really recommend it to anybody who's uh, listening. It's it, it's a it's a it's 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 a hefty philosophical book that's that's um, accessible and really thought provoking. So uh, I really uh, you know appreciate your having uh, written it. Um, and you know, Derek, it's been wonderful to talk to you. It's been great to talk to you, Bob. It really has, and and, and it's also been therapeutic for me. So I, I'm grateful to you for for that. I, I kind of needed this. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Well, let me before we go, let me thank our um, uh, our listeners uh, for joining us on New Books in Philosophy today. Um, uh, I've been talking with uh, Derek Darby. Uh, he's just published a fantastic uh, new book. It's titled uh, A Realistic Blacktopia, Why We Must Unite to Fight. It's available now wherever you uh, uh, might pick up uh, books. It's published with Oxford University Press. Um, thanks for listening to New Books in Philosophy, folks, and bye for now.